Hello and welcome to episode 1036 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs Baseball and all of our wonderful Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, talking with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. This is the penultimate team preview episode, I believe. Yes, yes, I have yes, confirmed right. via you right now that this is the <laughs> penultimate team preview episode. We will be talking with David Roth about the Rays because we couldn't find Rays fans. And we will be talking with Jason Beck about the Tigers before we get to that. Let's see. We I think we have a little bit of throwaway banter. I don't think I need to say anything further beyond just the report that Jared Weaver is complaining of dead arm. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's that like an onion headline, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jared Weaver complaining that he's been suffering dead arm for seven and a half years. <laughs> Moving right along, we have the news out Wednesday, so a little outdated, that David De Jesus has officially retired, which is one of those headlines that every so often I see like a, a sponsored advertisement at the bottom of an article that I look at it and I realize it's like a link to an article from 2011. So this yeah, is kind of right. like one of those. But, yeah, you know. Yeah, sometimes those players just take a good long while to file those papers and you get a little blast from the past. I had to look up to see how long it's actually been since David DeJesus played in 2015. That's actually more recent than <laughs> I thought. I kind of thought he'd been gone for longer. I think he was part of that sort of ill-fated, like, trio platoon the angels put together where i think they got yeah. like de jesus shane victorino and david murphy like all at the same time right and like and matt joyce when he was terrible maybe yeah well i think they were all trying to replace matt joyce who was terrible that year and then he became right, right. a very good hitter out yeah. of nowhere for yeah so that was a, a bad year for the angels but de jesus he's never really meant anything to me he's never played for a team that I liked, and he's just, whatever. He, he had a very good 13-year career. He was fine. He was an above-average hitter. But what I will always associate with David De Jesus, I, he has my own personal label as being the most average player of like a decade. I don't know if it holds up to mathematical analysis, but it's certainly how it seemed he was. Yeah. He seemed like an extremely average player almost across the board. So not just in terms of like overall value, but everywhere. He was, I granted, like a, a slightly better than average hitter, but he was not a big power hitter, not a singles machine. He didn't walk a ton, made fine contact, played a corner outfield, and he played it okay. He seemed like it was, when he wound up with the A's in 2011, I felt like it was the absolute most fitting transaction imaginable. <laughs> yeah. So his retirement to me, I guess, just means that I officially have to find a new most average baseball player. Yes, I can testify that you think this because a <laughs> listener named Alex emailed us to ask who the most average players were, and you said David De Jesus, and that was before David De Jesus was in the news, which he really <laughs> is now. Everyone's talking about David De Jesus, but yeah, I just calculated he was 2.5 wins above replacement per 600 plate appearances, oh. which would be slightly above average, although he only had two 600 plate appearance seasons, so he never really did that. So he was more like a two wins above replacement. Guy, so yeah, pretty average, decent hitter, decent defender, decent runner. He was all of those things, at least for most of his career. So good choice. And as you mentioned in your response, we could use math to figure out who the most average player was, but we didn't do that right now. Maybe we will yeah. at some point in the future. Watch us not actively do that. The last <laughs> thing I, I think that might be fun to talk about there was you, you might remember over the off season that Dan Duquette 
when explaining why the Orioles didn't try to sign Jose Batista, he said, well, basically our fans don't like him. I think you remember that. It was funny. Mm -hmm. It was a good highlight of the winter. Well, there's more on that for some reason. Today, uh, MLB.com talked to Dan Duquette. Not everyone, just one person representing (laughs) MLB.com. And the, the person was asking about Jose Batista again. And why don't I just, I'll just read this out loud. It's only one paragraph. It shouldn't be that bad. Mm -hmm. Dan Duquette. Well, that was an easy one. Referring to Batista, our fans just don't like Jose. We play those guys 25 times a year, which by the way, isn't true. And he's the face of the Blue Jays. (laughs) He's the villain in the play. Whenever we play the Blue Jays, I like our guys. Our guys are good. Mark Trumbo is like a working class type baseball player. If he was going to work every day on a construction site, you would understand that he brings that kind of work ethic every day. That's the kind of player that our fans identify with. We try to get gritty players that work hard every day and give their best effort every day. Our fans seem to like that and respond to it. Three things. (laughs) One, I think Orioles fans would love it. I think they would absolutely love it if the team didn't just try to go out and get gritty players who try to put forth their best effort every day. I think the Orioles fans are tired of acquisitions like maybe Mark (laughs) Trembo or, more pertinently, Craig Gentry, who looks like he could be a starting outfielder for the contending Baltimore Orioles in 2017. Mm -hmm. Second thing, I guess realistically there's four things here, but why why talk about Mark Trembo and construction? He already goes to work every day. People get to see him go to work every day. (laughs) Him being in construction wouldn't make his effort any more conspicuous because I don't think I could tell you the difference between a guy who's working really hard hard at hammering nails at a guy who's just kind of half-assing it. So I I guess he means maybe even if he weren't a millionaire getting paid lots of money, he would still bring the same ethic that he brings to Major League Baseball. Maybe that is the implication. It's a very confusing sentence. I guess. I don't know. And I think that Orioles fans might actually prefer to hear that Mark Trumpa doesn't try his hardest every day because at least that would (laughs) offer some sort of explanation for his defensive performance. Point number three, why Mark Trumbo? Mark Trumbo has been an Oriole for one year and he wound up there almost regrettably. He was a salary dump. He didn't choose even to go to the Orioles. Granted, I know he re-signed as a free agent, but that's because there wasn't the market. Why not, I don't know, Manny Machado or point to Zach Britton or, you know, team icon, local hero, Adam Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, maybe not local hero, but, you know, beloved hero. Yeah. One who is engaged in the community. Why not point to any number of different Orioles aside from a guy who's been there for one season and undid all of his positive attributes at the plate in the field? I don't understand that point. Point number four is the implication here that Dan Duquette thinks that Jose Batista does not work hard every day, does not give it his best effort every day. He does not bring that kind of work ethic every day. I don't, he might be entirely right. I don't know. I don't pay that much attention to Jose Batista, but if he's not trying hard, he's been a hell of a half-assed baseball player for the last <laughs> six or seven years. That's right. Well, maybe he was comparing those two because Trumbo was also a free agent this winter and they signed Trumbo instead of signing Batista. Or I guess you could say that they picked Trumbo over Batista in a sense. So if he's trying to draw the direct comparison there, maybe that's why you bring up Trumbo. I don't know. Those terms, whether it's like lunch pail type player or scrappy or gritty or whatever, are so often applied to white players that you always sort of wonder if there's some sort of unconscious subtext there. But I think, yeah, Orioles fans would love Jose Bautista the first time he did something good as an Oriole. I thought the comment was clever the first time he said it. I don't know if every Orioles fan felt that way, but he's playing to the base, right? Like either, (laughs) either he doesn't want Batista or they couldn't afford Batista or whatever. And instead of saying we don't, like him as a player or we couldn't afford him or we're too cheap to sign Jose Batista. He made it like a 
you know, catering to Orioles fans. Like, Orioles fans don't want him. Maybe some Orioles fans resent being told which players they want and don't want. But, I don't know, probably there is an animosity that builds up against opposing players that dissipates immediately when they become your player. But if they haven't become your player, then sure, I'm sure there are Orioles fans who hold a grudge. And so maybe it was wise for Duquette to say that kind of, I don't know, identifying with Orioles fans, making it seem as if he understands the Orioles fan. I don't know whether that's actually true of the fan base, but yeah, doubling down on it in the way that he did was kind of weird. I have no further thoughts. (laughs) Okay. WBC is over. Team preview's almost over, but not quite. We have four more to go, two more right now. So let's get straight to the Tigers. Okay, so first team up today is the Detroit Tigers. To talk about the Tigers, we are bringing in their beat writer for MLB.com, Jason Beck. Hey, Jason. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going all right. So can you give us a sense of what the Tigers' plan was heading into this winter and how it may have changed? Because there was a lot of speculation. Were they going to rebuild or were they going to add to the core that they have? And they ended up doing neither really and i'm wondering to what extent you know whether they explored other options before deciding to mostly stand pat well they definitely weren't going to add on uh with, with the payroll the way it was paying you know luxury tax already given the, the contracts that they had they didn't want to add on to that if anything they were looking to, to drop that down maybe try to get under but at the very least try to trade maybe some some veteran commodities to try to start the process of getting younger, which is something that's, even if it didn't have immediacy, it was a long-term goal. What they found was that the interest that was out there in their veteran guys, at least the ones that they were dangling onto the market, wasn't nearly the same as it was for what other teams were willing to offer in similar circumstances. Justin Verlander wasn't going to have the same appeal of Chris Sales and Chris Archer were on the market. And J.D. Martinez, while they had some interest out there, they couldn't find the same degree of young talent that they were looking for. They were able to talk with the Mets on them, but couldn't pull off, say, a Michael Conforto in return because the, the Mets were looking to hold on to a young guy like that. So you know, the combination of having older guys and longer, better contracts out there they couldn't get what they were looking for. So in the end, they decided, well, you know, if this is what's out there, let's just hold on to what we have for one more year and let the process play out. Payroll will go down naturally, and we'll just end up giving a one more run to see if we can win a division title or, or at least get a wild card spot. So with the Tigers clearly not dismantling or adding, they were a competitive team last year. They've been a competitive team for most of the recent years, and it seems like they're supposed to be fairly competitive again this year. I think we've been talking about the Tigers approaching some sort of cliff for what feels like forever, ever since they got good again. And clearly, just like always, you can look at this roster and and see what the potential downside is with the farm system being in the shape that it's in. But 
How many years, how many more years, I should say, would you give this current roster of being competitive given what they were able to do during their their brief rebuild in the second half of 2015? I would say this was probably their last go-around, certainly with the team constructed as it is. Ian Kinsler is in the last guaranteed year of his deal. Anibal Sanchez is going to be in the last guaranteed season of his contract. J.D. Martinez is the free agent next winter. I would not expect the Tigers to re-sign him unless something crazy happens. Mark Lowe, Mike Pelfrey, you know, there's a lot of contracts that are up, and that's the way the Tigers are going to go to try to get under the luxury tax. In the process, they're going to go younger because they're going to try to replace those guys with younger, more controllable talent. Do they have enough guys like that in the farm system? Well, not necessarily to fill all those spots. And that's the tricky part of what they're trying to do. And that's why they were maybe trying to kind of avoid the cliff and try to lean into it by trying to trade some guys this past offseason. Well, when they found they couldn't do it, they said, well, you know, let's just anticipate it and we'll approach it when we get there. So it's it's going to be an abrupt transition. They're going to try to, I guess, soften the landing as much as they can. I would suspect that they're going to go to try to be sellers at the trade deadline if they're not in it. Uh, the big question is going to be if they are in it, come the all-star break, might they try to add? I'd be surprised unless they're really in a position to where they think they can challenge for not just a, a playoff spot, but, but really challenge to be a World Series contender. And regardless of what they had done this offseason, I think the most momentous development from a competitive perspective only even would have been the death of owner Mike Illich and I don't know that there's any team that could trace its success more closely to its owner than the Tigers over the last decade plus. They've clearly outspent what you would think they would spend based on their market size and and economic factors because Illich really wanted to win. So what's the outlook as far as whether that attitude will be sustained? Well, I don't think they're going to spend at the same levels they used to. You know, Mike Illich was really obsessed with the idea of winning a World Series to go with the Stanley Cup titles and to, to complete a career in baseball that began when when he was a minor league baseball player. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. They, they weren't able to win while he was around. Chris Illich is very interested in baseball, but there's not necessarily that willingness to lose money doing it. I, I think the Tigers want to get the finances back under control so that it's a little bit more sustainable. That means spending at a more manageable level. That means trying to develop from within the farm system. It it means that they're probably not going to be in a luxury tax scenario. Among the questions that are taking place in spring training, most of the Tigers' roles seem like they're they're pretty well settled, but of course, I'm sure the question you've been dealing with every single day is what on earth is taking place in center field? And so I'll ask you right now on this podcast, what on earth is taking place in center field? Well, I think that's where you see that change of direction kind of midstream. You can see a demonstration of it. When the offseason began, the idea of carrying Cameron Maben for $9 million, it didn't fit in with what they were trying to do, which was ideally get younger get the payroll under control, and build long-term. Once that 
became unrealistic. You saw a team that was going to try to contend, but with a gaping void in center field. And even in that light, you can see the first steps towards building for the future there. They didn't go after any of the veteran free agents, even on a, you know, a non-roster invite. They looked at younger guys. They looked at guys in-house, and they looked to bridge the gap before Jacoby Jones, who they see as the, their future center fielder, is ready. So most likely you're going to see a Mikey Matook, Tyler Collins platoon there. There's a chance that Jacoby Jones is ready sooner rather than later, but I think the way they see it right now is they'd rather bridge the gap and give Jones as much time as they can to try to learn at AAA, get a little bit more play discipline, and kind of shore up everything defensively and round out the package rather than rush him up here, have him overmatched, and then find themselves having to kind of patch up some of the uh, damage that might be done if they bring him up too soon. You wrote something recently about Nick Castellanos and him possibly being ticketed for the second spot in the order, which is where the numbers would say you should hit your best hitter. Obviously, he's not the Tigers' best hitter, but he did make some major strides, at least offensively, last season. So what's the thinking behind batting him there, if that happens? And what was the source of his improvement last year? How much more room does he have to improve? Well, I think part of it, I don't know if this was really their end goal going into the season, but it's something that Nick has really embraced. He wants to take that spot. And I think as spring training has gone on, I think Brad Osmus has seen it as an avenue for him to get more out of Nick and to kind of further his development as an overall hitter, not just as a number two hitter, and maybe taking some steps that will benefit him long-term no matter where he bats in the batting order. Honestly, I don't really have an ideal number two hitter. If you look at the traditional stereotype, Jose Iglesias probably fits it better than anybody else on the team, but they seem to have a comfort spot with him batting lower in the order, eighth or ninth most likely. So taking that out of consideration, if you're going to throw somebody out there who doesn't fit the role, ideally, you might as well try to get somebody up there who can benefit from it. And I think they see the chance for Nick to have better at-bats, gain a little more play discipline, and try to improve on some of the things that they've been trying to work on him. You know, he's still going to be a power-hitting right-handed batter. He's still going to be a guy who strikes out a decent amount. But if you can improve the on-base percentage, if you can get some benefit out of that line drive percentage, which has really been pretty high for somebody his age ever since he got into the league, well, then, you know, you try to make the most of it. And I think that's what the Tigers are trying to do right now. One of the things that is so interesting to me about the Tigers is as much as people think about them as an older, expensive team headed for that cliff, I keep coming back to what they were able to do with their midseason trades in 2015. And so to sort of put you on a spot, I like Fulmer, I like Daniel Norris, I like Matt Boyd, but given what you've seen from them, not only last year, but also just this spring, how would you, in the least judgmental way possible, rank those three starting pitchers? Probably Fulmer, Norris, and Boyd. I mean, really, I think it's pretty clear, although I think people generally don't give Boyd as much credit as he might have deserved for what he did last season, and even Norris to, to the same extent. 
I mean, really, those two kept the Tigers in the race down the stretch, in my opinion, with what they were able to do. Uh, you saw Norris taking steps to pitch deeper in the games. You saw Boyd do a whole lot of work to cut down on his home run rate, induce more ground balls, and really become a better overall pitcher. And I think you saw them take steps in his element that might have even been ahead of the timetable for what the Tigers expected out of them. Could you also give us an update on Jordan Zimmerman, who was great last April and sort of a disaster thereafter? Is he fully healthy? Are they expecting big things like they were when they signed him? Well, he's healthy by all indications. You know, his velocity has been up. He's back up around 93, 94, which is you know, a pretty good sign for him, especially compared to last year. The question is, can he miss enough bats? He hasn't been doing a whole lot of that this spring training. He's going to have to do that at a little bit better rate, even by his standards, to be able, I think, to be consistently effective against big league hitters. But when you look at the stuff, it looks like it's there. You know, the fastball's got some life to it. The slider has got some good movement when he's on with it. It just doesn't seem to be resulting in those swings that you would expect. So... Right now, I think in terms of pure pitching, there's encouragement, but it's maybe not right where you want it to be quite yet. The story that seems to have sort of dragged the Tigers down for a while has been an unreliable bullpen and sort of in the same vein as bullpens. The Tigers are no strangers to having someone with electric velocity out there occasionally in Joel Zamaya, but Bruce Rondone very quietly last year in only about 30, 35 major league innings, he kept throwing hard. He was still blowing his fastball in the upper 90s, touching 100, but he threw strikes for the first time in his major league career. So given where Rondon has been, do you think that people have sort of underrated his his 2016 step forward? How big of a role is he supposed to play now for this Tigers bullpen in 2017? Well, if he's on, he's got a chance to play a pretty significant role. Maybe as Francisco Rodriguez's primary setup man. I think he did a lot of work with the secondary pitches. I think he did a lot of work trying to throw strikes and more consistent rate. It wasn't necessarily a smooth progression all the time, but I think by the end you saw a much better pitcher than what you saw when the season began. And I think having a veteran like Rodriguez there in the same clubhouse to, to mentor him to a degree helped him. So he's got to build off of that. We really haven't seen a whole lot of him because he's been away with Venezuela in the World Baseball Classic. But physically, he's healthy. So you would like to believe that he can progress further from there and maybe finally become that guy that, that they can rely on in the bullpen, not just a hard thrower, but a strike thrower and, and an outgetter. And what's your sense of Alavila as a GM? What is his philosophy if he has an identifiable philosophy? Or what can we conclude about what he'll be trying to do as he rebuilds this roster? Well, it's hard to tell because they've kind of had two different off-seasons. His first off-season as general manager, there's a pretty big buying spree with Jordan Zimmerman, with Justin Upton, with Mark Lowe, with Mike Pelfrey. And I think what you saw this past off-season was an effort to try to undo some of that investment that ended up fruitless. You know, they ended up really doing pretty much a whole lot of nothing. You saw them try to make more minor investments. You saw more non-roster invites. You know, they you saw them more, rely a little bit more 
on scouting to try to find some diamonds in the rough. We'll see if they found anything along those lines. You know, they feel like they have a the chance to maybe get a nice reliever on Senio Leon, the guy they signed out of winter ball in Mexico, but that remains to be seen. I think a lot will depend on what happens this summer. If it's a team that's out of contention and gets off to a slow start, I think you'll see him test in terms of how how to identify prospects, what to look for, and can he build off of what Dave Dombrowski, granted with, with Al's guidance, was able to do a couple summers ago when they were able to get Daniel Norris, Matthew Boyd, Jacoby Jones, and Michael Fulmer in some of these deals for Joanna Cespedes, for David Price, for uh, Joaquin Soria. I think they'll be looking to do more of that if they're not in contention. If they are in contention, then he'll be kind of under pressure to see what he can do to add to this team without either A, depleting the prospect ranks, or B, inflating the payroll too much further. Ben and I were sort of tipped off, and we discussed in a very recent podcast the fact that in every single one of his Major League seasons, to this point, Miguel Cabrera has gotten at least one kind of MVP vote. He's been on the final ballot, I guess, for all 14 seasons he's been a Major Leaguer. If you had to guess, if any more, how many more seasons in a row do you think Miguel Cabrera will get any measure of MVP support before he finally drops off? Well, I think you'll see it this year. I think he's poised to, to maintain at least what, you know, kind of what he's done over the last several years. Maybe not necessarily the same amount of power, but I think that quick bat is still there. I think that quick bat's got a chance to age pretty well. The big question in terms of MVP voting is going to be where is this team in 2018 and beyond? And can Miguel Cabrera do enough individually? to keep his name in the conversation. It'll be interesting to watch. It's a 10-person ballot, so even if out of contention, if he has big years, I would imagine he still has a chance to drum up some level of support, even if it's not necessarily big. But he can at least remain on the ballot, and at least, I guess if you want to use like a top 25 comparison, he can at least stay on the others receiving votes uh, list. <laughs> yeah. And Travis Sachik wrote something for Fangrass recently. He talked to J.D. Martinez, and Martinez recounted his distaste for ground balls and how much he likes fly balls. Have you noticed that being something that other teammates have talked to him a lot about? If you're around the team, do you see him dispensing advice about swing paths and launch angles? Is that something you expect to catch on with other hitters or because the Tigers are kind of a veteran team, are people's habits sort of set in that way? I haven't seen that spreading. I think it depends on the individual hitters and the type of interest they have in it coming in. I know you know, Ian Kinzer, while he might not use the same terminology, can think about that stuff. You know, he thinks about launch angles. He, he can think about exit velocity, things like that. I think Justin Upton is aware of it. Miguel Cabrera is a little bit more of a sea ball, hit ball type of hitter, which you can be when you have his natural ability. The interesting thing is more of, you know, along the lines of the younger hitters. I don't think there's a the same level of interest there, but I think you can see the roots for it. And I think you might see more of that as this team skews younger. 
My own personal last question about the Tigers concerns, you'd say, I guess their most volatile player from last season. I don't need to go into the details, but in the first few months of the year, Justin Upton was one of the worst and most disappointing hitters in baseball and in the second half, and especially in September, he was one of the most dangerous hitters in all of baseball. It seemed like he had some sort of mechanical hitch and made him vulnerable against pretty good fastballs, but given what you've seen from Upton now having his first full season in a Tigers uniform, do you think that you can ever look at Upton and count on him to be consistent all year, or is he just going to be sort of a a constant and streaky perennial work in progress? I think he's always going to be a streaky hitter to some extent. Maybe not the same level as he was last year. That that was pretty crazy. I think now he's got the background knowledge of American League pitchers and what their pitches do and how they're going to tend to try to get him out that you should expect some leveling off from him and a little bit more consistency. But I think to another degree, just because of the way he is, the way his swing can be at times and the efforts to, to get out of slumps that he's, he's always going to be kind of an up and down guy. And that's not necessarily to, to rag on him as a hitter. I think some guys are, are just that way, either because of their mechanics or because of the way pitchers approach them or, you know, even just, you know, because of, of reps sometimes. You know, that, I think he's got that track record to where, even in his great years, you're going to expect peaks and valleys. Every hitter, to some extent, goes through that. Even Miguel Cabrera, the last couple of years, has had some pretty surprisingly deep slumps when you look back on it. I think what you're going to look for with Upton is where is he down the stretch run when they need him? Where is he during key times? And where is he against key opponents? And I I think it wasn't a coincidence that what he did down the stretch in those last 35 or so games, I think I looked it up, about 80% of those games were against division opponents, teams he was seeing for like the, you know, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time around. So I would expect that, you know, as you get into divisional play, he should be stronger because you should know what to expect. And as you get against kind of out of division opponents and maybe non league opponents in league play, that there might be a little bit more uh, likely to, to struggle. But then again, those same pitchers are going to have to learn how to approach him and, and learn what he's doing. I compare it to, and granted, it's maybe it's more of a local reference, but I kind of compare it to Vinnie Johnson. Vinnie Johnson was a, called the microwave during his basketball career for a reason. It, you know, he could be hot and cold during his time with the Pistons. But if he needed somebody to to kind of light a fire under a team and maybe kind of be a catalyst, you know, he was the guy you wanted to go to because he knew what he was capable of when he was on. Yeah, I kind of look it up in that way. I don't think it was a coincidence that the Tigers had one of their best stretches when Upton was hot. And Brett Osmus openly talked about his job security last year and whether he had any. And I'm wondering, I guess, what he has to do to keep his job this year. And do you think he is interested in managing a team that maybe won't be that competitive, at least after 2017? That's a good question. He's not really talking a whole lot about it. Well, he's really not talking at all about it. (laughs) But, you know, the the irony of this whole thing is, 
if you look at his body of work the last couple years, his best work has arguably been with the Tigers' young players. Uh, I think you look at what James McCann has done to progress as a catcher the last couple years. You look at Michael Fulmer, you look at Norris, you look at Boyd. These guys have made pretty darn good progress under Osmus. And I think in a lot of those cases, he's taken a fairly active role with them. Now, he's deferred to the positional coaches and and what they've been trying to do, but I think he's also been active in trying to help them get better and trying to help further the developmental process and maybe accelerate it a little bit. I know he's taken a very active role in McCann's development as a catcher in terms of working with pitchers, in terms of calling a better game. But, you know, you don't see too many managers like Ausmus being willing to catch bullpen sessions to get a firsthand look at what a pitcher's pitches are doing and what they might be doing mechanically. And I think there's an advantage there that if he wants to be on board for for the youth movement, yeah, I think the Tigers would be better off having him. You know, the question is going to be, does he want to do that or does he want to jump to a contender? I think it's a little different argument than what people in Detroit might expect. You know, people who think this team should have won like nine World Series titles in the last 10 years or whatever. But I think that argument needs to be approached because, yeah, it's the last guaranteed year of his contract, but you can look at this as his contract year as well to where if he wants to, if they have a pretty good year, he could hit the open market and kind of, I don't think he would be short on suitors, to be honest. I think a good year with this team, strengths and weaknesses and flaws and all would do a lot for his resume. All right. So we always end these things with a win total prediction. Can you give us a number for the 2017 Tigers? Well, I mean, they were an 85-86 win team last year. They largely kept this team together. I think if you look at everything, I, I expect them to be right around that same range. I think it would take a lot of things to go crazy right for them to approach 90 wins. By the same token, I think the injury bug would have to hit them pretty hard for them to be a 500 team or below. I think it certainly could happen, but you know, I kind of split the difference and look at this team as, you know, let's say 87 wins. Is it good enough to win the division? Well, you know, if the Indians are what everybody expects they're going to be, probably not. If the Indians have a World Series hangover and they have to deal with injuries and pitchers dealing with fatigue after throwing them in the extra innings. Yeah. You know what? They kind of have a shot to sneak in there. I think they have a good shot, if not better than anybody else in the division. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, a lot of Tigers fans would take that. I'm sure you can find Jason on Twitter at Beck Jason and read him all the time at MLB.com. Jason, thanks as always. Thanks for having me on. I always love doing this every year. All right, thank you very much. We'll be right back with David Roth on the race. These things that I see, these things that are me, tell me why, tell me where do I in the plan. All 
right, so it is time to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays, and to do that, we are bringing on David Roth of Vice Sports. And David, this is our fourth year of having you on the show for a season preview podcast to chronicle your continuing tour of Major League Baseball's B-sides or the annual chapters in the Baseball Prospectus book that no one else was all that eager to write. So you did the Marlins in 2014, you did the Rockies in 2015, you did the Angels last year, now you have done the Rays. How did this essay compare in your ability to bring out the despair? I mean, on the scale of like, it could have been the Padres to like actually writing about a team that I was optimistic <laughs> about. It was it was a different sort of challenge because they're like, I mean, the Marlins and the and the Rockies, I think, were very, and I guess the Angels too. In this case, they all have this kind of like obvious vibe of being like thwarted by extremely hands-on and extremely like just flubby owner types. Yeah. It's like the Rays have this. There's like a whole system there. There's a, a thing, you know, that like based on the success that they had, you know, some years ago. And then also on the fact that like, it's not just like throwing darts, like the Rockies just like giving three year contracts to middle relievers every year and being like, well, we tried, you know, like there's, there's a thing that is clearly like a plan that is being followed. And yet it just does not seem to be an extremely good plan to me. And it hasn't worked very well for some time. It's hard to know, you know, I can't like fall back on the usual clowning of it because there's like, Mm -hmm. there's clearly a lot of people that are much smarter than me that formulated this thing and that are still in charge of doing it. And yet like the result is the result, which is like, you know, five of the same type of infielder, like relieving each other's in term, you know, in matchup situations and like committing a bunch of errors and striking out. Uh-huh. Yeah. A, a lot of your essay is about the plan and hope or the lack of hope. And do you think it's a bad plan relative to the plan from say four years ago is it the same plan and it's just not working as well and if not is that because they were lucky to have it work as well as it did before or have other teams just caught up is it harder to have a plan like this that works now i think that's more what it is is the last that like i think it's it seems like a very similar plan and i worry i mean this is the thing i write about that i and again i'm you know projecting guessing whatever i mean i i'm not they're extremely secretive, even by the standards of front offices yeah. in terms of like, you know, so it's hard to know exactly what's going on. You're, you're kind of trying to reverse engineer a strategy starting with, you know, this roster. And, but I think that like the bit of it that I think, cause I don't think it's a bad plan. I mean, I think it's the idea of, you know, 80% of the production at 20% of the cost is like, you know, it, you may not win a world series like that, but you know that they can, you know, they've demonstrated the ability to way overperform expectations you know, by doing it that way. The, the challenge for me, and maybe this is some sort of, you know, bias in terms of my perspective on it, is that you can start to see a certain type of player that they had, you know, that they were able to really make hay by identifying, you know, years in the past, like a Zobrist type, a sort of like a, a useful player that can play several defensive positions and like makes offensive contributions that sort of exist outside of the traditional like counting stat, like arbitration figure sort of metrics and like they did very well with that it's just that when that player becomes not like you know this sort of additional success story that you bolt onto the players that you develop and the you know the actual gambling trades that you make when that becomes like the actual focal point of the process and the core of the team and it's like you wind up with all these like brad millard nick franklin formerly logan Forsyth types who all are fine players it's just that like 
that can't be a core. You know, that, that those are extremely useful complementary players, but a roster that is comprised entirely of those, or almost entirely of those, is, you know, the roster that you see. It's like a 70-odd win team. Like, even though it's all totally rational to target those sorts of players, and even though they're still available at a relative discount to what they provide, it's like, you know, I was going to quote Chigurh from No Country for Old Men, but that would be even more obnoxious <laughs> than everything else I did. But I mean, like, if the rule that you follow leads you to a 72-win season, like, how good is the rule? <laughs> like, if the plan that you are perfectly, faithfully executing every year keeps screwing you up like this, then, like, maybe flip the plan. But I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it could change at any time. You know, it's just, it seems to me even the guys that they're targeting in deals and these prospects all seem like raised types. Willie Adams and Jake Bowers, they're all kind of like these like Mishkite guys that don't fit at one position or another. And like, you know, I think you still need some traditional star power in order to really make it work. I've seen a roster with Brad Miller, Nick Franklin, Logan Morrison, and Jesus Sucre on it. And those rosters did make the playoffs. <laughs> Trigger warning uh, for like block. extreme Mariner flashbacks here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird place to be doing your budget shopping. One of the <laughs> trivia points I love to bring out. I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, the base runs uh, standings metric. It's kind of like baseball prospectus's third order wins metric. It's basically let's try to strip out as much of what we think is luck as we can and see where that leads us and so by overall record you probably already know this or something like this by overall record last year the texas rangers had 95 wins and the tampa bay rays had 68 one's good one's bad if you look at base runs which is really not that different from just looking at ops4 and ops allowed the rangers had 82 base runs wins and the rays had 81 one team was incredibly fortunate by that metric, the other not so much. Given that, and given that the Rays so dramatically underachieved in that regard, is that something that you think you pin on the team as it was constructed, or is this just a situation where the where the circumstances feel more bleak than they actually should? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question I've been asking myself. I mean, I was asking myself that when I was writing it. I've sure been asking myself because, I mean, I put baseball perspectives in the weird position of writing this essay that's kind of like, you know, a eulogy for a specific type of like capitalist triumphalism from the, you know, whatever the previous presidential administration. And then they go ahead and their prediction metric has them winning like 87 games. So <laughs> like something is wrong and it's, you know, I'm, I'm used to it being me. Uh, it traditionally is just from my past experience, but I, I don't know, like exactly. It's hard to say. I mean, because it, this is the other part of it. I mean, that like just the fact that there is a plan and that it is being executed as you know, consciously and as well as it is, like, there's a tendency on my part to honor that maybe more than, you know, than I ought. Like, I mean, I think it's still also sort of hard to say that, like, for all of that, the ways in which they sort of dramatically underperformed what could have been expected of them, there's also, like, there's nothing super unreasonable about the ways in which they underperformed it. I mean, they just, they struck out a lot. They didn't, you know, they, they made a lot of these sorts of, like, obvious mistakes that you look at, and the, I think that pitching was unlucky, but there's still something about him that just didn't feel quite right. Like maybe it's just a sort of bias against a certain type of player that I think of as a complementary player, but there is an eye test thing that kept sort of bugging me that, you know, and that was, I think, why I was able to sort of go a little bit harder on the things actually being as dark as they seemed. And I could, you know, extreme, like I said, like there's a really solid chance I'm wrong. It happens almost all the time. And You'd think that the Rays might have more incentive to do the teardown type rebuild that some other teams have done than a lot of clubs do just because 
the attendance is bad to begin with. It's not like they're going to lose that many fans if they're bad for a few years. And of course, they're always trying to keep costs down and that would help in that area. Do you think there's a reason why they haven't pursued that, why they've tried to keep being good and also replenish? Is it just that they've been too close to contention to say, okay, we give up? And it's not like they've been super old and depressing and terrible. They've been kind of okay and maybe underachieving a bit, but there is some amount of hope every year. Do you think they've been caught in between or do you think they should be in between? I think they believe in their, their system. And I think, you know, the issue with it, I mean, again, this is the other thing about it that like it would all, if they hadn't been drafting so terribly for so long, the system would be working roughly as well as it did. I mean, like the process that they had in terms of getting these players, like it works when your minor league system is producing Cole Crawford and Evan Longoria and, you know, tradable assets, you know, the Delman Young type or whatever that like when that's happening, it works when the system is like just coughing up one hairball after another, you know, using the same sorts of like picks more or less and the same number in many ways, like then, you know, it's harder to say like, that it it is or isn't working. I mean, like what's not working clearly is how they're evaluating players in the draft. And maybe there's something wrong in the developmental process in terms of why they keep producing the same kind of goofy tweener types with these high picks. But I mean, it's tough. Like I sort of, in many ways, like understand why they would stick with it. I mean, that like the idea of like flipping an asset for other, you know, components, like, you know, they've done it when they can do it. I mean, they did it. They traded David Price. They traded Logan Forsythe. They got as much for them as they could. It's just a question of like, at this point, it seems like the what's not working right with the way that they put the team together is like, you know, it hurts them in these trades too, that they keep getting these sorts of like multiple complementary type players and they, you know, have just sort of platoons themselves into a certain type of mediocrity. The trade that I keep going back to is the one, it's the, the Trey Turner, Will Myers deal where they somehow wound up with Steven Souza as the hall in this deal, you know, again, he's like a totally fine player and somebody that the Rays would in the past have like valued more accurately and, you know, been able to get at a better price than other teams. And at this point they like sort of, it seems have overpaid for this like raised type of complimentary player, you know, that that either that's overthinking if you want it to be, you know, it's them trusting their stuff too much, or it's just, you know, that they've made mistakes and stuff like that. But, you know, I had this sense with all of it that, you know, the vibe of it was what it was, you know, just in terms of like reading about the team and looking at the last few seasons. But the actual, you know, organizational philosophy is like a black box inside of another black box. I think I probably don't need to read to you from the projections. I don't need to read numbers to you. We've all seen enough of the numbers and we all have enough of an opinion on whether or not we believe them. Two-part question. One, is Kevin Kiermaier the best player on the Rays? And two, is that a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say yes and no, seems like. I mean, like, in, in that order, respectively, yes and no. That, like, <laughs> and he's, he's a terrific player, and they seem really, in a lot of ways, to have, like, that's the sort of player that if the Rays are going to get back in it, that they need to score on. It's not a high draft pick. It's a guy that they, you know, identified and developed and have, you know, worked to you know, help him build a game that suits the skills that he has and minimizes, you know, the other issues in his game. It's just that, like, again, like, that that guy is the useful third or fourth piece in a lineup, you know, just because of, the, of his offensive limitations and stuff like that. The idea of, of that being, you know, sneakily your most valuable player, okay, like, objectively and, you know, sort of 
more or less inarguably your most valuable player, like that seems to be more of an issue. And the rotation is the bright spot here. It's very bright, or it has the potential to be very bright. And Jose De Leon, the big offseason acquisition, might not even make it, at least to, to start the season. So how many of these guys do you think will actually last the season with the Rays? And how good do you think this group has the potential to be? Very good. Um, and I wouldn't know, you know how long necessarily everybody's going to last. It seems like this is the concern that I had, or you know, or one of the concerns beyond obviously making an ass out of myself by writing something really depressing about a team that winds up making the playoffs. Uh, that was the main one, but the other one was that they would somehow be a charger during the off season and like you know tear everything up and sort of reconsider. You know, it was nice for my essay that they didn't. I think it's also cool for them that they didn't. I mean, the rotation really does have a ton of promise. It did even before they got De Leon. I think with him, there's really like that's a thing that you can build on you watch the Mets do it and like it seems like the most logical thing in the world that just has to be extraordinarily difficult to do and it seems like they are you know much of the way towards doing it the thing for me that's just confusing and it was the same you know you saw it in the sort of the Drew Smiley trade there are personnel moves with the exception of of getting De Leon which seems like a fantastic haul it's really hard to see that they're able to like make these moves that would nudge them back over the top. I have no doubt that they will trade some pitchers. They have too many. It's just that if they keep trading them for, you know, like trading a dollar bill for a bunch of like really shiny dimes, it doesn't seem like that. You know, like we've seen that that is not necessarily working for them. In the past, they were, I'm not going to continue with the coin metaphor actually, because it would have been, that would have been strange (laughs) and probably unsatisfying for all of us. I just mean that like, you know, in the past, you sneak one or two of those wins into a bigger deal. Like that's, you can obviously help yourself a lot that way. It's just been, I can't parse what they're doing. You know, the the smiley trade, especially it's just like continuing to get these kind of like speedy platoony outfield guys. Like they have a reason you know, and I bet it's a good reason, but like it is extremely difficult to figure out from my couch. I will say that. I know we sort of already talked about this earlier, but do you suspect if he had the guess that maybe the Rays are just in a situation where there are more teams who are thinking and acting like the Rays, except they have more money? And does, does that just put the Rays at a disadvantage that they haven't had to face before? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that's a, a big part of it. That like certainly the idea that like, you know, they, had this and we've seen it with the with the A's with most of these teams. I mean now that there's a lot of smart people in that business and you really only have a sort of that edge of a even if you're as secretive as the Rays are, there's, you know, no truly proprietary idea. Like eventually people sort of figure it all out. And I wonder if that is the case. I mean it's a lot easier to the Rays just because of how little money they have don't have the you know sort of the margin for error that a team, you know, that is pursuing a similarly sort of coherent strategy, the Red Sox could use the same strategy and they could still duff it and pay Rooney Castillo or, pay, you know, just like get a million things wrong that would add up to the entire Rays payroll. And, it, you know, it's a write-off for them. They barely notice. Whereas with the Rays, it's like when you really only have this narrow margin to begin with because of the financial situation, it puts a lot more stress on the system. And then if the system is no longer outpacing everybody the way that the Rays were years ago, then it really does put you in an awfully tight spot. Related to that, let's hear your best explanation for the Rays bringing back Logan Morrison. He, uh, well, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about what a, <laughs> he's possibly a very good home chef. 
<laughs> he's the DJ in the clubhouse. I I don't know, man. I mean, it just seemed like the raziest possible thing. That was the type of guy that they were going to get, right? Like some ostensibly slugging guy that would plug in at first base is half of a platoon or, you know, the other half of a DH platoon. There was a party that was hoping that they'd get just like Chris Carter or somebody more fun. And yet, like, I don't know. I don't think they got brought back Logan Morrison because they like had already, you know, made up all these uniforms for him and would have been inefficient to just have to throw those out. It's sort of like the secondary market on eBay didn't look strong. So you may as well just bring him back, give him back to him. It's weird. I mean, you guys have, I mean, more experience in the world of Logan Morrison than I do. I mean, there's no, no one's under any illusions about him at this point, right? Like he's precisely who he is, which is like, a fine player, but like objectively, Logan Morrison. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Yeah. I mean, is there something about Lomo that you have realized or noticed from your experience with him that you think the, the Rays are picking up on? That they're picking up on? No. No, I think that there's definitely a lot of things that it seems like the Rays are not picking up on. <laughs> that they're in denial about? Uh, all right. <laughs> cool. That's good to know. Yeah. I mean, they've had a series of first basemen and DHs who just can't really do the things that first basemen and DHs are usually expected to do. And often they've had catchers who can't hit, which at least is more normal for catchers. And they have had good defensive catchers mixed in there. They actually signed a catcher who could hit this winter, which is new and exciting. Mm -hmm. Although in typical Rays fashion, the catcher they got who can hit cannot actually play baseball currently. (laughs) Yeah. And then when he comes back, he's going to have to DH. The things you got to do to get a bargain these days, man. (laughs) So I don't know how closely you've followed the Rays minor league system, but they ranked 11th, according to Baseball America, in the organizational ratings this spring. That is slightly up from 13th last year. And honestly, 11th is not bad if you look at the teams ahead of them, because either the Dodgers, the Yankees, who kind of are in their own little economic world, or their teams that are currently terrible or have recently been terrible, which allowed them to build up their system. And the Rays are definitely not in the Dodgers-Yankees category, and they have not been that terrible. They certainly haven't been intentionally terrible in a in a way that was intended to restock the system. So in light of all that, 11th is not so bad. <laughs> are they kind of coming out of the, the lull, the, the bad drafting dip? I mean, it's, uh, you know, probably too soon to say, which is an extremely cop-outy answer, but like it does seem like they, at the very least, by giving themselves more opportunity, I mean, the draft in which they picked Blake Snell, which is, I think, the, the one really successful pick of theirs that you can point to recently, is, you know, that they had, I think it was like five of the first hundred picks or some crazy thing that year. And like, they didn't, you know, a lot of them, they did not get right, but like they have given themselves opportunities and there's no reason to expect that they've suddenly like forgotten how to do the things that made them a successful baseball team. I just wonder about the question of who's going to get hits for them that like Willie Adams is a guy that people like, you know, obviously I haven't seen him play, but from talking to like the prospect people that I've talked to, they're like, he's like a razy type player. Like he's like a dude that might not stick a shortstop. He's like a good hitter, but he's not going to, you know, whatever blow anybody's doors off in terms of like power or, you know, any one particular tool. And again, like they've succeeded in the past by like piling enough of those players on top of each other to really make things annoying for opponents. It's just, you know, until you see them doing it again, it all seems kind of, implausible but yeah i mean i mean this is the thing about about it that i sort of i'm glad to be able to sort of defend it and yet like all i can really say over and over again is that like 
they really are smart. Like I'm not like the idea of them being somehow a lost cause, which I think, you know, in some ways I think for a small market team, the cause is very well hidden at the very least. And it's very difficult, especially in that division. But like, yeah, I mean, these are all really competent people. The team is competently put together. It's just like unclear whether the old magic works as well as it did. Mm -hmm. Is there a Reyes experiment that you have found most interesting over the past few years? I don't know if any of the current experiments are as interesting as the experiments were 10 years ago, but They've done little things, whether it's starting relievers occasionally or getting starters out of the game earlier or having their hitters swing earlier in the count, that sort of thing. I don't know how enormous the benefits of these things are, but they at least seem to set the Rays apart a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're still tweaking is another sort of that's like a sign that, you know, nobody's completely fallen in love with this idea that worked in like whatever, 2011, now they're sort of stuck doing that over and over again the calling pitchers after the second time through the order is like kind of fascinating to me because because of the weird like cruel manifestations that it had last year like it had that kind of like experimental like almost like a business schooly type thing they'd pull like matt andrews sort of bit like four and two thirds and he's pitching great now like sorry man like this guy's actually faced you twice already i don't know if you remember it and, like, just stuff like you know you feel bad for you feel bad for matt andrews for a bunch of reasons but it's all one of these things where you're just kind of like i don't know i mean again it's sort of it depends really on how like what your natural response is to that sort of like efficiency right that like it is intriguing and it is nice to know that they're continuing to have like new ideas but there's also sometimes this sense that you can get just in you know regular civilian contemporary life as being like part of some sort of broader app driven experiment you know a part of silicon valley and you're just sort of like at some point, maybe that's not as much of an escapist thing, like watching a team like put some proprietary algorithm in motion and pull a pitcher after four and two thirds no hit innings or whatever. Like it's not, it's intriguing, and they're definitely doing something. And yet at the same time, it doesn't maybe exactly scan as fun. It depends. I mean, I'm not. It's different. You know, if I if the team that I cared about was doing it, I think I'd have a lot easier time talking myself into it. Like the the Rays, even before I had this sort of like briefly and immersively try to pretend to know stuff about them they were this they were just kind of this like curio and then when news about them surfaced you know it had very little to do with them contending for anything it would always be about shit like that where they'd be like everybody bunted like in order like nine of them like i don't know like it's the thing they're working on <laughs> like that is interesting to me but it's still it had that kind of sideshowy experimental thing to it. Mm -hmm. I hope that bunting is not their thing, but I saw that Kiermaier <laughs> went down to their minor league camp and bunted in seven consecutive at-bats over two games in one day the other day, which is like kind of worrying. But, you know, again, they're, they're a lot smarter than me, man. I gotta, I'm got assuming they're working on something. <laughs> All right. So want to give us a win total prediction? 87. I don't know. Like whatever, whatever the baseball <laughs> analysis said. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't think they're a 68 win team. I don't think that, you know, like, obviously, like we said, that they were extremely unlucky with that. I, I don't know that they're better than 75 wins. I think they could win 75 games. They could probably win more than that. But I would say 75 is about the sense that I got with the possibility that it's one of those things where it starts out bad and then they're like super spunky in August and September or something like that. You know, like when, if like De Leon is there, if they make some trades that reload and, you know, like once like Adams and, and Bowers, if they get there this year are, are in the, the fold. I mean, there's definitely like hope for them. There's hope for any team with that many smart people running stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the last three teams we talked to you about averaged 73 wins in the season <laughs> after we <laughs> talked to you about them. So 75 really would nice. be a big improvement for you. Do you have any guesses at who I'm going to wind up writing next year? I've been thinking about it, and yeah, I'm worried that's that it's a good popular, question. But... No, it's the Reds. You're stuck with the Reds now. Just, just <laughs> that's true. Year. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's like the Brewers, Padres, there's like something going on there. The Reds are definitely one of those ones where it's like, they're clearly a metaphor for something bad. Like, but what? <laughs> no. The Reds clearly yeah, I got, just need to hibernate for a while. Yeah, I got 10 months to figure that out. It's really exciting. <laughs> All right. You can find David at Vice Sports and on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. Thank you, as always. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. That will do it for today. Thanks to the literally dozens of you who tweeted at me and Jeff and Sam about Washington Post congressional reporter Paul Kane's tweet about an unidentified House Republican who told Majority Whip Steve Scalise to burn the ships when it came to drumming up support for the health care bill. Only way to do it, Steve Scalise replied, but it looks like burning the ships has its limitations as a motivation tactic. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild five listeners who have already pledged their support include dana bennett tom mully daniel watkins linus marco and zach brady thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes keep your questions coming to me and jeff via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the patreon messaging system thanks to dylan higgins for editing assistance we hope you have a wonderful weekend we will be back next week with the last season preview podcast which will cover the pirates and the yankees I got things on my mind and I'm dying to teach And if you listen, we can make the mission complete I'ma sell that ocean till I find that peace And keep searching till I find what I'm trying to reach So many things on my mind and I'm dying to teach I won't stop until my mind's at peace I'm almost there